0: Welcome to Architecture Insights, the podcast series produced by the New South Wales Architects Registration Board. I'm your host, Di Snape. A trip down the river or the railway line or Parramatta Road out to the west of the CBD of Sydney is a short lesson in the massive changes that are taking place right across the suburbs of this city. And this year's 2017 Sydney Architecture Festival held in Parramatta was an exploration of what those massive changes mean for architecture. The talk you're going to hear today, uh, recorded at the Sydney Architecture Festival, Digital Placemaking and Platform Urbanism, wrestles with really the question of how we're dealing with that massive change. Are we doing a good enough job and what are the opportunities that we might be missing? Can cities be a platform for distributed innovation or are we tied to some kind of top-down model of hero architects and God planners and media-savvy mayors? You'll hear in this talk speakers including um, the excellent and inspiring Indi Jahar, Whose whose global oration from 2016 you can also hear on this podcast series. He's an architect and the co-founder of Project Zero Zero, um, and a senior innovation associate with the Young Foundation, and visiting professor at the University of Sheffield. We'll hear from Associate Professor Dr. Hank Hausler of the University of New South Wales, whose main research interests around media architecture, responsive environments, smart and ubiquitous cities, and responsive transport environments, and is currently leading a major piece of research in, uh, that relates to low-cost approaches to transport infrastructure. And you'll hear from Dr Sarah Barnes, Western Sydney University Research Fellow at the Institute for Culture and Society, whose urban studies postdoctoral research Uh, focuses on platform urbanism, the role of city labs, data intermediaries, and open government experiments in urban governance. And in the role of MC, you will hear the voice of our very own registrar, Tim Horton. This event at the Sydney Architecture Festival um, is another in a series of live podcasting events that we're experimenting with here at the board. So I'll leave you now with Indy, Hank and Sarah talking digital placemaking and platform urbanism.
1: Hello everybody and welcome to the Sydney Architecture Festival. My name's Tim Horton. Here we are in the lobby of the Peter Shergold Building at Western Sydney University. In turning our minds to today's topic, I think we need to start at the very beginning. William Gibson told us the future was already here, it's just not evenly distributed. Digital navigation like Garmin and Strava for many of the cyclists out there navigate, help us navigate the city. GPS sat navs sit on our dashboards and Google Maps in our smartphones help us to navigate our way around. Siri can tell us our loved ones uh, will be home in 10 Take it a step further, banks in Australia have completed their first commercial exchange using blockchain technology. We need to understand what impact this may have on cities. And how much will this change in the coming years or will the drivers for design ever change? Are some things universal? What is the future of these wireless networks, the smart devices and urban computing that run our cities? I want to throw first to Hank Housler and ask you, Hank, where you stand on urban computing technologies and whether they are in fact good or evil.
2: Thank you, thank you, Tim. Thanks for having me here today. Um, Looking around the audience, I can see clearly we've got two different people here. We've got people who've been born before 1989 and we've been people here that have been born after 1989. So why is that date important? Well, that's the date the internet was invented. So we've got clearly two different people who know a world without internet and without digital technology, and we've got a world where people never knew anything else in digital technology, or some people here in the audience um, don't even know a world without a smartphone. So why is that important in the discussion for digital placemaking? If we would go 100 years back, and we would sit here in 1917 and discussing about recent changes in technology, we probably would talk about things like the combustion engine or electricity. And we will probably have an, an audience that's half known a world where there was no cars, no combustion engine, no electricity around, and you went to bed at 5 o'clock in the evening, it was dark, and a journey from Sydney to Parramatta would have taken half a day by horse and not 30 minutes by train. So what we can see quite clearly here is a world in the 1917s that have been driven by the first machine age. So the first machine age has been defined by general purpose technologies, such as combustion engine and electricity. And if you look now into 2017 and think about how much our world has changed by those two technologies, combustion engine and electricity, it's enormous. The car-driven city would not exist. High rises, because of elevator, would not exist so suddenly our city would have been a completely different city just hundred years ago so what we've been at the moment is we've been moving into a second machine age where general purpose technologies are no longer combustion engine and electricities. so technologies that increase the muscle power of the humans by a thousand fold but digital technology that increase the, the human brain power by a thousand fold Second machine age technologies are items like the blockchain you mentioned, Internet of Things, artificial intelligence, machine learning, digitalized information. All those matters really will change enormously how the built environment will look in the 21st century. How it exactly would look like, and if it's good or bad or evil, I can't really tell. But I think it will happen, and it will happen even quicker than the rise of the car or the rise of the combustion engine, or the rise of electricity before. So I think these are the the, the foundations I think the discussion should be based on today, that digital technology is here, and it will infect enormously the way we think and we behave in the built environment, we navigate and we, we conceive the built environment, and what it could be and could not be is probably a part of the discussion today. So media architecture started very, very humble with having big screens on buildings. And in the past, it was possible to do so on TV, like Blade Runner, for the ones who've been younger. It's not the Blade Runner movie that comes out right now. It's the Blade Runner movie that was launched in 1982, where there was a giant screen on a building, and that giant screen just gave an idea of a dystopian um, Los Angeles in the, the future. So at the beginning, it was really about screens on buildings. But as much as as, um, a smartphone is not just about screens, a screen always is more, it's about the computer behind it, it's about the electronics behind it, sensors, um, um, a data store, um, internet browser, apps, and so on. So media architecture is no longer, and and probably never have been, just about screens. And we discussed it in in the book Tim was mentioning before from the Media Architecture Biennale. Um, media architecture and big screens and building is just more as a representation of second machine edge architecture, where all those things I described before come into the built environment and, and visualize themselves through the screens. But of course, there are other forms of, of digital placemaking as well, um, when, for example, use digital information or data and potentially machine learning to transform the build environment or generate build form out of out of data.
1: Thank you. And as we talk, we have within our sightline a great example of uh, how screens are being used for content, for branding, and ways to involve the crowd. I can see Instagram posts from those attending, as well as our own great festival brand uh, on that great screen. We're reminded that content is important. Sarah, you are big on how content is developed. To build storytelling and narrative at a time when we can get lost in all the tech, tech, but for what purpose?
3: Thank you, uh, and thanks for having me here today. Um, I, I guess, I've developed an interest in digital placemaking um, and what I like to call platform urbanism out of a, I guess, a you know fascination with the design and storytelling possibilities of working across built environments that are both kind of recorded ecologies as well as um, built interfaces, if you like. Um, I an originally actually started in this in this field in around two thousand and three when I was working at the ABC on on kind of future um, uh, interactive um, modes of storytelling with first broadband but then mobile technology and I was really interested in, in creating um, experiential interactions between the recorded history of a place and the contemporary built environment. We often know and particularly in places like Sydney um, that what we see is not necessarily the full story of our city the full history of our city, there's been this quite severe editorial process that's already been undertaken um, within the, the space of the built environment already. So I became quite fascinated with actually thinking about places through the kind of eco- ecologies of all of the different kinds of digital information that existed, not just um, I guess visual information but also you know sound and other kinds of photogra- photographic and archival content as well as then extending into the kinds of um, data, the data exhaust that we generate as we move around the city every day, and so that kind of led to, I guess, yeah, a new a new practice form um, that is about thinking through uh, interaction and storytelling that does take into account both media ecologies, um, data datafication, and the data exhaust of our daily lives, as well as kind of situated places and what they mean to us in our communities and in our cities.
1: Talk to me about the data exhaust. Is this a
3: good thing or a bad thing? Well, I mean, I, I. My fascination with this form of practice uh, grew and I I became aware of the emerging field of digital architecture that really looked to the possibilities of networked cities um, through the increasing datafication of our everyday spaces. People like um, you know, Australian architect William Gibson, sorry, um, Bill Mitchell, sorry, to, to refer to who I'm speaking about. He was really advocating the city of bits, and there was a very kind of participatory and open environment where places could be constructed virtually through software and not through bricks and mortar and so forth. So there was this great kind of radical openness that I could see um, Uh, being kind of imagined with the rise of ubiquitous technologies. But as a bit of a historian myself, I looked to previous ages of um, optimistic um, um, orientations toward things like the the emergence of um, the train networks, um, radio, television and so forth, and then the birth of the internet, that were going to offer all of these kind of radical potentials, but in fact didn't quite deliver. And to me, that was really about um, some of the dynamics of, of commercial operators um, that work within new technologies. And I started to become very interested in um, the business models that digital entrepreneurs use within our um, ubiquitous age of technology today. And looking at the platform business models that we see um, and we operate with whenever we interact with our smartphones, I became more and more, I guess, concerned that while we have this sense that there is ubiquitous data and big data and, and so much potential to kind of reimagine and remake the city through access to data. In fact, increasingly, this is being locked up within proprietary kind of software ecosystems. So a lot of my practice today actually kind of works within the the domain of city policy, for smart city policy, to think through what's the role of government, what are the role of different actors in trying to address platform ecosystems and the kind of, um, you know, the proprietary implications of a lot of the technologies that we use.
1: I'm immediately reminded all of you are involved in projects as practitioners and uh, you hold down positions as academics. So you speak from positions that are both hands-on, but also with that delightful distance that comes from seeing your fields in cross-section. Indy Jahar, you landed just a few hours ago from London. Where are you on media architecture and the infrastructure that sits behind digital cities?
4: I think what uh, Hank and Sarah have outlined is... Is really important. Uh, in a way, I do think we're at a kind of tipping point. I think the kind of threats outlined by Sarah in terms of platform architecture and platform urbanism, where they consolidate uh, wealth into the hands of the very few, is, uh, I think, a foundational story. I mean, we're seeing network economies grow, which are effectively creating massive degrees of inequality in our cities, and the impacts of these inequalities are starting to grow uh, in terms of. I think funded foundationally to undermine the nature of democracies in many formats. So how do we drive inclusive wealth in an age of digitization is I think one of the kind of foundational questions that we do have to uh, look at. Now I think that also comes back at a foundational idea of what does it mean to be human? And why do we talk about, um, why do we talk about industrial age or industrial uh, 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 industry 4.0 or machine age 2.0, which I think is really interesting. Why do we call it machine age? Why do we call it machine age 2.0? Well, we call it a machine age, largely because capital can invest and buy machines. So when you take money, you can invest and buy machines. I can't invest or buy humans. It's kind of illegal. So the reason why we preface this whole conversation around the industrial age, is because actually capital can buy machines. But actually the real revolution is typically always what it does to humans is actually the emancipation of humans, is the real story in the game. But we focus on the machines because they become the tools of, of capture and business models behind it. So I think there is a kind of foundational question at the uh, center of this discourse, is what the implications it has for humans. And the implication for humans is not negative. So when people talk about sort of the destruction of jobs, actually what they really talk about is the destruction of labor. And let's talk about labor. Labor is foundationally the deployment of humans as a resource into a predefined idea of how you create value. Maybe how humans will create value will be not labor, or the term I tend to use is kind of as bad robots. So most people are deployed and employed like bad robots. We're programmed to do a job in a way that's actually pretty reductive to the awesome capabilities of everyone in this room. So everyone in this room and everyone listening to this podcast is more impressive than any general artificial intelligence that's ever been made or likely to be made for the next 40 years. So let's just take a deep look. Every one of us you've probably met today, everyone you've probably listened to is more impressive than any general artificial intelligence that has been made to date or likely to be made for the next 40 years. So the real question is, are we really unleashing the full capacity of humans? Are we really unleashing their full capacity? And I think that's the real deficit most of our cities are facing is the deficit of trying to be in a managerial economy in a post-managerial age. Now when we start to look at it from that perspective, I think you start to have to reinvent cities. Our cities were defined and designed for transactional efficiency. Density is actually a transactional density, not a creativity density, not a density of what it means to be more human. It's a density of how you can intensify transactions and intensify the number of interaction points. So I think underneath this kind of machine age conversation is actually a much more profound question for me, which is actually this idea of what does it mean to be human in the 21st century? And I think that's going to be about care, creativity, contextual intelligence, and collective intelligence. And how you're able to build those four C's is going to be the driver of change. And cities that are able to do that profoundly well will be the makers foundationally different ways now i'll manifest that in a city idea right in a very simple way of looking at this you know we often talk about dead space right there's a kind of a conversation this space isn't very active it's dead space and let's imagine if i was to recall that dead space space for reflection space for personal quiet space for thinking now the reason why we call it dead space is a prejudice of what we think should be happening now imagine we build cities where actually reflection and profound thinking is actually appreciated. I have the pleasure of walking into London. If you walk into London, some of the amazing churches that London has buried in its you walk in their beautiful, calm spaces, but nobody gives them the value. Now, in an age of massive care, creativity, humanity, and contextual intelligence, those sort of environments become much more of a premium than the buzz of a coffee bar. So how do, what are the new values of this new age that are prerequisite of driving, driving actually, cr- the, the transformation of our cities, I think is going to be foundational. So I think, whilst it's important to look at the tech, I think we can also now start to look at what does it mean for the post-managerial age. And Tim, our last point I'd say is that my big challenge right now is I think we're still building our cities from a managerial age. And I think we should be starting to think about post-managerial cities. Cities where managerial blight, large off-footprint offices, will be seen as near on derelict in the next 20 years. And they will have the same issue that we had with industrial cities. And that's because managerialism will either be disseminated, destructed by uh, technology, automation, AIs, and other things, or, as we're seeing by TEAL organizations, um, which are foundationally changing the nature of management. So. Uh, Bootswager, which is a neighborhood care nursing organization in Holland, has 8,000 nurses and 25 people in HQ. That's 80% of the neighborhood care in Holland, 25 people in headquarters. That is actually a post-managerial economy that we're starting to come to, and that's just the beginning of the story. In that future, I think we're looking at a completely different idea of what it means to be human and a completely different nature of cities. Thank you, Indy. Of course, I'm reminded managerialism, uh, as
1: you put it, is not the exclusive preserve of government alone, uh, but can sometimes affect public, private or any other sector. It's a a way of thinking, as you put it. At the heart of what you're talking about is a radical democratic idea, taking things from a hierarchical model, a centrist model, to a more distributed model that is essentially uh, democratic. Hank, the media architecture Biennale looked at whether digital urban strategies can be more open-sourced, more do-it-yourself, more from the bottom up, as an alternative to mostly, as we see, prestigious, well-funded, corporate-driven, uh, top-down uh, approaches.
2: What did you find? I think what we found in the, in the Biennale was, in, in the research several years that the idea of of a smart city is really driven by commercial entities that have an an urge to sell you products. Um, If you look into IBM or SAP or all the other companies, they for the longest looked into a a market in in, in companies, enterprises, where they could sell a a product, that market had been saturated, um, and a new market was found as a a city, as a city that could be optimized, could be re-engineered, could be more performative, um, managed. And I think this is a big, big error. Um, I don't think um, a, a company and a city are equal. You can't really put the same kind of mechanism of optimization onto a city, because a city fundamentally, is always different. So each city is different or each neighborhood is different than the other neighborhood or each street is different than the street next to it. So the idea that one fits all is, is quite problematic. So what we then looked into is to say, well, in, in, a, in a digital age um, where, where digital information can help people to, to do certain things in a different way, is there a way that um, everybody has the tools to, to engage and, and, and work with digital tools that might not be a top-down approach, but a bottom-up approach? And I think we found there a few opportunities and few encouraging examples around the globe where, where people used their smartphone technologies, technologies that could be hacked into um, electronics that just been readily and cheap available, and tried to solve problems that really occurred in the neighborhood with a, a creative approach to the problem that existed for them. So not really one fits all, but here's one specific thing that's good for us, and it might not completely work in, in a next door neighborhood or in another city, but for us it was quite good. And I think that's the, the beauty of, of digital technologies at the moment, that it's, it's easier to program, it's, it's more accessible, everybody can, can use them if you want to use them, and with a little bit kind of time, um, you've been able to, to adopt your own solution and, and, and through a, a neighborhood. And I think that was quite encouraging in the, in the Media to Biennale um, as a result. Where it all would lead, I don't really know, but I think there've been first kind of seats in there, and it probably just takes. A generational shift as well, where our generation, being in the 40s, has not been trained to use electronics, has not really have the computing or the programming capacity to make the full use. But I'm quite optimistic for for younger generation that just grew up with um, electronics, with programming, that they use um, code and bits and pieces in the same way we have used a, a hammer and a nail to fix something in our house or, or in the street. So I I would say we will see in the next years uh, a rise of a bottom-up approach.
1: So, Hank, that begins to put in play your other hat, computational design uh, at the University of New South Wales. Uh, An example of what I'm hearing you talk about is brought to mind. One of your students, I think, around 18 months ago, looked at removing unconscious bias in legal matters in a courtroom setting. Uh, seemingly what you're doing and what your student did was bring coding and architecture together to work out the optimization that can be done, in this case, in courtroom design, um, given the evidence from memory that an accused uh, can have a different outcome depending on how they are literally seen, that is, by the sight lines within the courtroom, how they're facing and how they are seen by the judge and jury. So is this the beginning of how digital technologies are influencing physical space, uh, with the idea of a more democratic outcome, removing the weaknesses of humans uh, that we see via our unconscious bias,
2: I think what we 've done in, in the computational design degree was very purposefully put theory and thinking in the center of the degree. Um, technology comes and goes and, and programs come and go and but I think what we found out and what we strongly believe is that thinking and understanding what it means to live in a 21st century is essential. So in in our course, we obviously, as as an older generation, teach the younger generation, but in those theory classes, we also want to have a a voice from the students to understand how they think about 21st century problems being born, which I'm speaking now, some of them already post-2000. So we've got post-2000 students in our degree, um, as a bachelor degree when they've been 17, 18 years old and go into university. So that kind of conversation between the current generation and and our generation through digital technology and through design is is really what drives us. And and through those conversations maybe new ideas of of the example you explained with the courtroom could come up because they see things in a different way. And where I see my role and and our tutors see their role is, is facilitating, it's like a midwife of an idea to say, well, you've got the idea, um, you, you grew up with digital technology in a different way that we have done, and you, you see things differently, so we can help you to, to facilitate that idea, um, but not be really constrained of what you can do, what you can't do, what architecture is, what architecture might be. Um, we've just been by more open than that. And potentially that helps sometimes. Yeah.
1: So, Hank, maybe you're educating the next generation of architects who will bring new platforms and business models into architecture in an industry that's been fairly fixed for a few hundred years, I'd have to say. Sarah, your opening line in your postdoctoral thesis is taken from uh, Phil Simons' The Age of the Platform. You say this has profound implications for our cities, We think of a platform as a business model, best known in the apps that load on our smartphone. So what does the age of the platform mean for our cities?
3: Yes, well, I guess it's true that, you know, the the concept of a platform is is very ubiquitous and it's a bit kind of woolly and woofy, really. It's used in all kinds of ways. We talk about political platforms as well as digital platforms, but I think when when um, you know when people like Phil Simon and other kind of platform strategists are, are discussing uh, the platform play, as it's known in, in the sort of field of digital entrepreneurialism, it's really about um, establishing a sort of basic infrastructure, a digital infrastructure that allows other kinds of transactions to take place. So, you know, at its most basic, and there is now quite a lot of, you know, theory around the design of a platform. Um, if you have the basic infrastructure in place that allow um, different kinds of of um, transactions, whether that's buying and selling, or whether it's um, social interactions. Of course, a lot of these platforms did originate out of the social media space. Um, What it is, is you're enabling a kind of uh, open innovation to take place, so it's not as though the the entity, the commissioning entity, whether we're talking Facebook, whether we're talking YouTube, whether we're talking Google, whether we're talking Instagram or or Uber, um, just to name some of those dominant platforms, these companies don't necessarily have to actually orchestrate all of the value creation that happens on the platform. The platform um, establishes the infrastructure from which others generate value, and that is what and that principle has what is what has led to the sort of rapid um, expansion and dominance of this as a platform model because it's it's more around the kind of the ecosystem that can be created off a basic infrastructure rather than the kind of the the pipes model, which was much more controlled and in, in fact managerial. Um, the implication, though, is that. Through the platform architecture, the data that is created through all of the interactions that take place, whether that's you know finding a, a better um, room to stay in in a, in a nicer part of town, or whether that's getting a ride that's faster, or whether that's kind of instant kind of um, gratification from how many likes of your holiday snaps that you got, all of that data um, is is actually you know owned by the platform provider, and and what they're able to do with that data is to generate improved services. Um, and to move into new spaces and to new industries. And that's why it's very disruptive. I think it it also creates huge asymmetries between um, globally dominant players and local players. So it's very difficult to establish a kind of local startup in, particularly I think countries like Australia are suffering because you don't have the kind of scale um, of of data generated through a local platform to provide the, the level of serviceability that you can if you're, say, Google. Um, or Facebook. So, so this kind of, the, the, the data agglomeration um, that occurs through the platform business model enables, um, you know, it's the well-known adage that if you're not paying for something, you're the product, and enables all kinds of investment in new services that it's very difficult to keep up with. Um, Just to take an example, I used to work, as I said, at the ABC, and we we did strategies around supporting um, uh, digital emergencies and uh, uh, monitoring of the impact of emergencies on local communities. And there was an attempt at that point um, for government to establish a clear kind of framework of response um, using the range of data that they had begun to... um, uh, uh, try to kind of garner from past emergencies. And in that context, working with with the Google representatives at at the table, they were already kind of 15 years ahead of any kind of government policy, so everyone else just kind of gave up. And I think that we're seeing that more and more in different kind of sectors where, um, you know, the the might of the the platform behemoth is able to really act very disruptively when they move into a new space. So smart cities is, I think, really a... A very um, iconic example of a of a platform ecosystem in play, um, particularly the rise of the Internet of Things and IoT. There are many many companies that are doing the kind of the platform play to really manage the basic infrastructure upon which all kinds of sensor data is then is then kind of maintained.
1: The term information asymmetry is often used, isn't it, where parties don't have the same capacity or information available to them in the exchange. What I'm hearing is that in many cases, government may have the desire but not the capacity. We know that private sector often has the capacity but doesn't carry the imprimatur or the social licence to act in the same way that government does. But also what you seem to be talking about is a platform has the potential to massively disrupt cities. Take Uber uh, alongside with a massive casualisation of the workforce, Uh, I can see how this might become uh, difficult for cities, might begin to change cities. Are we likely to see this type of disruption as platforms becoming more commonplace in the way then cities operate?
3: Well, yes, I I do think so. Um... I think there's a couple of things at play and we can talk about platforms in terms of basic infrastructure so if we were looking at say the role of uber in our transport system we're seeing it currently that the New South Wales government is really looking to uber as a business model to look at, to replace existing uh, I guess mass uh, transport provision models and what does that mean in terms of the role of government uh, its ability to kind of plan at large scale cities that when it may not necessarily have access to the same kind of data that it would um, through say the system that's a kind of question again in terms of the data shadows that begin to emerge um, when you enable a platform provider to um, uh, replace some of the services that would otherwise be publicly managed but I think there's a really other uh, interesting dimension to platform ecosystems which is that the very intent of a platform is to encourage interaction so, I mean, I don't know if any of you around the table or in the room have noticed, but most people will be looking at their smartphones when they're in public spaces now. And the reason for that is because it's really, really interesting. There's a whole lot going on in, that, in the kind of platform ecosystem of an Instagram or a Facebook or what have you. And capturing an environment that you can then share in that space has a bit more of a kind of, you know, emotional impact than it does standing around looking at your shoes or perhaps trying to make uh, awkward conversation with someone that may or may not go very well. These kinds of subtle uh, interactions that are happening or or transformations that are happening to the social life of small urban spaces, to use that kind of the William H. White uh, phrase, um, I think that these are really quite dramatic. We're seeing this, we know this, but what does it it mean for the way that we design and respond to future cities? Do we want to kind of create different environments that can support more human interaction um, or are we happy to kind of explore the potential of the much more mediated non-place interactions?
1: So ultimately cities are about how we organise ourselves and that's changing. I'm a child of the 70s and then cooperatives were big. Uh, they, were, they were in some ways themselves a platform. They provided a structure in which the many could come and participate. Indy Jahar, I was watching your Twitter feed a few weeks ago and I can quote you. Cooperatives recreate bounded silos, you said, albeit fairly synthetically. Commons tech like blockchain create the capacity for unbounded organising.
4: What do you mean? Yeah. Um, I, I suppose I, I want to just pick up a little bit on what Sarah was saying and I'll wrap into this as well, which is that uh, platform technologies are, let's, let's reframe it, I would say they are natural monopolies they are marketplaces. They are privately owned markets and privately created markets. And the problem is not that we don't know how to deal with them. The problem is that government has not, been, uh, has not had the right language to address them and deal with them. So we do know, I mean, currently for an Uber driver, your driver ratings and your capability is not portable. That's equivalent of me saying everyone that's employed here can't take your CV to another employer. So, your CV is entirely owned by one provider. So, we just haven't found the 21st century means of dealing with these new technologies. And I think that's, and so, we're, and we're also purposefully allowing them to be misframed as quasi kind of free market corporates. They're not. They are designed to be monopolies. They work when they're monopolies. They are natural monopolies. And I'm not saying we should get rid of them, but I'm saying once you understand them as natural monopolies, you can then work with them in different ways. We need to think of them as almost utilities, 21st century Mm. utilities. Um, And I think we have a history of how 21st century utilities were built privately and then publicly and then uh, then almost returned back to being private again over a cycle. So, firstly, I think it's really important we start to kind of name these things. Secondly, I think what we're seeing is a generation of cities now start to understand that. Uh, So, Copenhagen has banned Uber. London has now gone into a very, I think, a good, uh, principled discussion with Uber about uh, removing their license, largely because there were things that Uber was allegedly doing which which wasn't appropriate. Nothing to do with the technology itself, actually, foundationally. So, I think as regulators and government starts to get a grip on this new wave of a new economic model, I think we'll start to reframe what regulation looks like and how we manage that. So I don't think this is an and or problem. I think it's about a framing problem. And I think we have to frame these technologies in the right way. So that, that's one aspect. The second aspect is that I think platforms are basically uh, very simple protocol mechanisms. Uh, and they allow for very simple transactions to be happening on a shared infrastructure. Um, the best quote I have is um, a friend of mine, Aral, who says they they farm people. They farm your data. That's what they're there to do, is literally farm your data. And they what they really are looking to build, a place like Facebook, are digital synthetic ideas of you, which they then trade to corporates. And the synthetic idea of you, your digital self, is what they're building. Your profile, your preferences, your biases. And those are the things that they're really trading. And so we haven't yet got up to date with what does it mean to be you? Is it okay for someone to actually create a synthetic idea of you and for that to be traded? Or should that belong to you? So the notion of rights, your sovereignty, is out of date. And that's that's what we're really facing, is a paradigm shift mm-hmm. between an industrial idea of rights and sovereignty to a post-industrial digital idea of rights and sovereignty, and I think that's just. I'm slightly patient that we're starting to now start to talk about the stuff, and that will come back on the table. I think platforms are step one in a process, and I think where blockchain technologies take, takes us is effectively to phase two, which is effectively an unbounded co- uh, global computing architecture, which is what it is. It's a, it's a kind of a new architecture for which goes beyond platforms as a means of organizing. And what it allows us to do is create mechanisms of organizing which are much more akin to movements. So you can do linked contracts which are, have no boundary to them. They can have hundreds of people join them or thousands of people join them which are l- virtually friction free. So I mean, we're, I'm not talking right now. There's a huge technological... So we're talking in blockchain term we're probably in 1993 of the internet, and we're now talking about a world as 2001. So mm-hmm. just to remember the kind of gap that we've got between where the where the direction of technology is and how long it'll take to to mature. So I think we're in a moment where we'll start to deal with silo-based organisations to unsilo based organisation. And why I think that's a paradigm shift. And I'll answer now Tim's question directly rather than working my way to it. Uh, is I think foundationally one of the biggest challenges we face is the notion of how we've structured our worldview. Our worldview is entirely based on notions of silos. So silos of corporates, you as an individual, as a silo, as an object, we're an object-orientated society. That has been a notion of how we built Western civilization, certainly for the last 300 years. Newtonian physics allowed us to see things by making things discrete. Um, science from art, everything, all the way and even if you, there's some really great studies done around ethnographics, which is if you show a child born from a western background, a painting, they describe the object in the painting, then if you ask them to describe again, they'll describe the context, whereas a child born in the east, the same painting, they'll describe the context first and the object second so it's a kind of cultural bias that's been buried. Now I think that bias value is coming to the end, so I would argue that climate change, financial, the great financial crash, these were all crises of system crises, interdependency crises. Um, and when you look at it from an interdependency crisis, you start to realize the system or systems-based thinking starts to challenge the notion of what it means to be sovereign or individual. And the silo becomes not a source of value creation, but actually a source of risk. And I think we're moving into a whole new age. And that's where Platforms are the first precursor of massive organizing systems with low bureaucratic infrastructure. So they're basically the revolution that happened. The modern state and the modern managerial economy was born in Germany, as we currently know it. And that was actually all basically around reinventing bureaucracy, as we have it today. And I I think we're about to have, we're basically in the middle of a new age of bureaucracy which is being reinvented through technology which is foundationally changing how we organize and black, platform technologies are version one, blockchain technologies will be version two of that means of organizing and they will challenge the notion of what is a bounded system and and I think that is the real profound thing so Silas, uh, so that's why if you look at blockchain technologies I think they are part of this synthetic commons this unbounded means of organizing which has no limit which isn't defined by uh, but defined by relationships rather than boundaries, which I think is really intriguing. Mm
1: -hmm. All right, so there's another side to this as well, which may be embedded within blockchain technology itself, which is how some of the decisions that might be automated get made. That brings me to the idea of the algorithm itself, um, lying, I think, at the heart of this emerging technology. The author of a book called Weapons of Math Destruction, um, looked at the downside of algorithms, which is that algorithms embed the bias we want to see. So am I right to counter your optimism, Indy, at the unbounded democracy with potentially what is a dark side uh, as we rely more on automation to make decisions? Can algorithms be doctored? And, Hank, can they have in them inherent bias? This is important, surely, as we move into the age of machine learning and AI uh, who is doing the driving here, and what are the biases they bring?
2: I, I would say that yes, they they can be biased. Or they, uh, I'm not an expert in algorithms, but I've seen um, articles that says there is potential that algorithms have a bias um, because what they do is most well, they just take information from a from a, a sample of of people, um, and if those people have a bias, then well, obviously the the algorithm will reflect that um, as well. But I think. What what a fundamental issue isn't the question is there is there always good or is it always bad? There will always be some good and some bad aspects. So never it, I think there will never be a black and white thing where you only have the good sides. Through modern technology or modern thinking, there's always a, a negative side. So going back again to my example at the beginning, at 1917. Um, at that time, the car and the combustion engine probably had huge advantages. Nobody thought about climate change. Nobody thought about traffic jams. You know, if you had three cars in Sydney, it was awesome. You just had the road for yourself, and air pollution was not an issue. Probably there were other issues for air pollution at that time. So I don't think there's a, there's a, there's a pro and contra. But I think the, the importance of algorithm and the importance of programming for architecture, being an architecture festival... Will, will really hit and will hit quite hard and quite quickly. I think what we can see already now is we're gonna go more and more away from desk space um, operating. Like, you don't really use your word processor anymore on your desktop, you use Google Docs on the, on the web browser. And I think that will happen very, very shortly in architecture as well, that you don't really work anymore on your desktop, on your platform on the desktop, but you work collaboratively on the web. So if you think about it, when you work on a document like a Google Doc, I can write some part, you can write some part, and at the end the whole thing becomes one piece. So that's possible. But if you think about designing a building, or just a normal cottage, a normal garage, something simple, and you draw at one end and I've got to draw at the other end, at some stage probably becomes difficult where both parts meet each other. So I think drawing and designing a traditional way in architecture through lines and, 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 and curvature is, is probably um, difficult to achieve as a collaborative web based model. But what you can do is you can write pieces of code, you could piece pieces of software and bring those pieces of software text together and merge them together or copy and paste things from the internet from an open source platform and then have them as one piece of, of text together and that piece of text execute then a building instead of a, a, another software piece. So, Indy, is this open source platform
1: that Hank's talking about uh, what's behind OpenDesk and WikiHouse, just two of the networked organisations, I guess, you're responsible for?
4: It is. Um, I think sort of GitHub for design is is now more and more real. There are lots of people looking at. Uh, sorry, GitHub is basically a, um, a coding platform for uh, mass collaboration where many people can copy, paste, fork, vary the code, which is a source code, so it's like a, imagine a a bunch of train tracks. You start with a bunch of code and somebody can take that code, fork it, vary it, share it back on the platform, it allows for repetitive, uh, kind of iterative uh, variation and innovation of some original code. That sort of stuff is coming right now to design, lots of people are looking at these stories and they become essential to the framework of collaboration. Um, So I think those things are are coming in. One thing I wanted to just pick up on your AI point um, and your algorithm point, just bring it in, Mm. is uh, all the studies show that if you're doing uh, recruitment, your best recruitment happens when you write down the parameters of what you're recruiting for, because the cognitive bias of humans is such that they will end up recruiting self-similar to them. So you will always bias towards what you want, what Mm. you are like. Whereas actually if, you, if you're a recruiting panel and you sit down and you build out the characteristics of who you want to recruit and why, actually you end up with better recruitment. That's kind of, there's some really good studies about that. So I think algorithms by forcing things to go from being unconscious to conscious mechanisms allows us to effectively deal with a lot of cognitive bias that already exists in the system. And right now, we are seeing failures of algorithms, I mean, there's lots of really interesting examples. But I think the shift into actually making it documented will allow for much more profound discourse. Your example of the courtroom, which I think is a brilliant example of kind of the, the soft biases that exist in systems, which can now be given a metric. We know that in behavioral science terms, you can understand in a UX or user experience on a web, actually the level of bias of pre-clicking something versus pre-ticking something off or not taking something off. Mm. It's 70% deviation. In choice architecture, You, it's 70% more likely that you will accept something if it's pre-clicked for you. So when you have these sort of frameworks, and we now know the maths behind them, it foundationally changes design, because design becomes accountable to the shift in actually what we're, what biases we're generating. We're not generating flat choice architectures. We are creating biases, environment, biased environments. And when we can build the maths behind that, I think that allows us to be better designers, more equitable designers, more transparent designers. As long be it, the state becomes more powerful in simultaneously understanding these new parameters and forces them to become into the open, which I think will be the next stage of the process. So what happens when a, when a regulator says that if architects are designing spaces, we want to see the, the kind of, in, in a way, the, uh, uh, the biases of those spaces mathematically written down and actually given out as a design parameter. Mm-hmm. So that they become documentable and commutable against, which I think is a new model of accountability and transparency. So whether they're right or wrong will happen over time, I think, but the act of making it conscious will have immediate benefits.
1: And the challenge is if we put everything through measurement and maybe a metrics lens, we'll lose what it means to be essentially human.
4: Is there a danger in that? I think it's a journey, right? So I think what we, uh, my view is more that more we metricize some aspects, actually release ourselves to be other parts of our human. So other aspects of our humanity come more to the fore. Care, emotional intelligence, actually more complex thinking becomes much more valuable rather than actually more basic thinking. So I think this is a complementary story rather than a human reductive story. And I think we have to, and the reason why we think it's reductive is because we perceive humans as almost like limited capacity. When you look at the awesome capacity of humans and we build our education systems and our learning environments, our human development environments to be of that order, I think we can actually release humans to be far greater than we are right now. Mm. So that brings us to the design of the soft stuff.
1: Um, Sarah, you've written that the problem with formalistic design-led approaches is that they tend to engage with system design at the expense of what you call social process. I think what we're beginning to hear is that the next generation of architects being trained, potentially here at Western Sydney Uni, will have to grapple with a whole set of new parameters. Uh, Maybe the idea that coding is a core competency for an architect. Uh, Do you see hope in the design sector? Do you see green shoots? Do you see hidden strengths when it comes to thinking around this social process?
3: Yes, I do. In short, um, I think that the design sector is really well positioned to play that kind of politically proactive role in, in, in seeking to to reshape what is possible in a, in a highly you know technologically mediated world um, in a way that perhaps other disciplines, even, dare I say, planning or other kinds of um, policy responses may not be as kind of speculative and, um, and future-oriented as a design profession. Um, what I think the the potential here um, to maybe link back to some of what Indy was saying also is to to think about um, something like uh, the master planning process. For example, we've previously uh, considered that as a as a almost a, it's a static kind of document that gets created at the beginning of a development life cycle. But to think so so to think outside of the box of that model to say what about if we have um, ongoing metrics that can help to to establish how well an area is performing over time that allows for the designer to to have a more longitudinal kind of role in ensuring um, as a development progresses that things are um, kind of aligned to a broad set of principles and goals and visions for that space rather than that being a kind of relatively um, weak document that becomes weaker and weaker over time. And I think in that kind of space, you know, architects in particular can play a really important role. Their role isn't to necessarily do, um, you know, purely, in terms of that kind of visual design process but it is perhaps more to engage in that social design in terms of the kinds of um, things that can be measured beyond um, the traditional metrics to to consider the ways in which um, some of those spaces can be framed and to think about that kind of possibilities for human interaction in more longitudinal ways. So I think that's where the great benefit lies really is to to think of that interface of the spatial and the social um, using the possibilities of quantification and also their limitations.
1: Thank you very much. Uh, About 48 hours ago, the Vice-Chancellor of Western Sydney Uni, Barney Glover, announced an inaugural chair of architecture, Professor Chris Knapp, with the idea of offering a course in architecture in 2018. It is the first course in architecture in New South Wales designed for the 21st century, designed in the 21st century. So for a new chair, what advice would you all give to the new professor? What should a new school of architecture look like? Hank?
2: Well, it's also the regulatory and um, the regulatory bodies in the 21st century? I think what is, that's one of the main issues when we designed our course, we had the computational design the freedom of not being regulated. We had the freedom of saying, "Well we're just going to look at what, what is currently important." And we also understand that things you might teach now can be completely different in two years, three years' time. So I think the, the model of having a course established and then saying, well, we've got it established on the 21st century thinking, and we're going to keep that for the next 5, 10 years, every 5 years you get reassessed, is, is maybe difficult. So I would advise Chris Knapp and congratulations Chris to the new position, I'm looking forward to work with you together, um, is, is being open that every 2, 3 years you reflect what you've done and then alter an agile model instead of a fixed model.
1: Thank you. The good news uh, Hank is that the new accreditation procedure is more performance based which might allow schools to be more agile. Thank you for that uh, for that plug. Sarah.
3: I i don 't feel that I can adequately kind of um, fully advise on all of the dimensions of an architecture degree, given my background is not architecture, but I certainly um, would advocate for um, an importance of of theory and history with at the center of, a, of an architecture degree that recognizes um, the kind of the dyman- dymanic, <laughs> dimensions of human transformation and urban transformation as being really at that kind of very longitudinal process that there are always limitations to purely spatial responses to a situation Um, but having said that to also uh, provide opportunities for that kind of prototyping um, approaches that can really test in the real world um, as students develop and evolve.
1: Indy, any any thoughts?
4: Yeah, I mean I... So, I mean, obviously in terms of the design aspect of it, I think uh, there's quite a lot of precedence in terms of the role of design studios, but I think where I'd put a lot of emphasis is actually the curriculum side. I think there is basic curriculum that we're missing from most architecture schools. So, I mean, I I would look at a greater emphasis on philosophy, greater emphasis on behavioral econometrics and behavioral science. I would look at a greater emphasis on uh, um, NLP, neural programming, and also I put in a great emphasis on neuroscience and its impacts on spaces. And there's a lot of really good research coming in on the conditional impact of uh, of space and neuroscience and behaviours. Some brilliant research, which is showing, for example, um, the effect of being in taller spaces has on levels of creativity, levels of performance, and outcome. Uh, which actually foundationally, is where I think architecture will move not on the efficiency of number of human beings that you can capture in an office plate to actually the, the quantum of outcome that human beings can perform and once we become more focused on outcome orientated as opposed to kind of efficiency of space orientation I think we're looking at foundationally a different architecture and I think the role of a 21st century school is to make that transition from being rest- less about real estate optimization but to being more about human optimization, And that, that's why we need a new relinking of architecture back to the human sciences and the advanced human sciences as they're emerging to build the evidence in the database with effectively the knowledge of how computable and programmable infrastructure will change the foundation of how we value architecture, which I think allows us to build a whole new case for architecture.
1: Well, thank you all three. We plan to wrap that up and present it to Chris Knapp and to Professor Kerry London here at Western Sydney University and to see if that can contribute to a program that's titled Built Environment and Urban Transformation. So there is transformation in the name, in the ambition for the course, and hopefully in the output. Thank you all, uh, and please enjoy the remaining festival program. Thank you.
0: That was a live podcasting event from the 2017 Sydney Architecture Festival, and I would just like to acknowledge some of the partners in the festival this year, including Western Sydney University and the City of Parramatta, as well as support from the Government Architects New South Wales. Thank you very much. You've been listening to Architecture Insights and I'm your host, Di Snape. (laughs)